This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. So... Here we are at the site of the Burt home. 207 East 9th Street. And uh, as you saw from the map, it was a fairly quiet neighborhood, collection of Victorian homes, just one block off the avenue. That was what Congress Avenue was known as for years. People just call it the avenue. Everybody knew what you were talking about. You were saying that there were some financial issues. Oh, his brothers constantly help him set a business. Eugene would just take the money and never set up that cigar store in New Orleans. And then he would cheat and embezzle and lie. They gave him a job at the shoe store. And he was doing this over and over and over again. He was going in, changing the books, taking money out of the till and getting caught at it. It is a 19th century narrative. And just denied and denied and denied. It was pathological about it. But before all of that happened, before Eugene Burt was accused of one of the most gruesome tragedies in Austin's history, there were the Servant Girl Annihilator murders, the series of murders that we mentioned in the last episode. The Annihilator's first victim was a black private cook in her mid-20s named Molly Smith. She was murdered on December 30th of 1884. Molly was attacked in her bedroom, dragged outside, raped, and killed. She was found lying in snow behind her employer's home with blood pouring from gashes in her head, wounds that had been made with an axe. The scene was very violent. The reporters who bothered to report on her murder made much of the color of her skin, that she had a light complexion but they ignored details that they likely would have published about white victims. Molly was from another state, Virginia, and she was a single mother to a little boy. Humanizing Molly was not the priority for Austin's reporters, but local historian and tour guide Monica Ballard says that the press was happy to offer readers the gory details of her murder instead. At the very, very tail end of 1884, there was one woman who was attacked and lobotomized and polished off with the sharp side of an axe. And not very much effort was put into finding the perpetrator. Because she was Black and they didn't care, they wouldn't feel the public pressure to find the killer that they would have if it were an affluent woman who was murdered. I asked Monica if they pursued anyone after she was found. They brought out bloodhounds. They went as far as Shoal Creek. 
And when it came to the, you know, the opportunity to cross the freezing waters of Shoal Creek to see what was on the other side, they thought, no, somebody wandered into town, committed this deed at random and left. And that, that's it. it. It'll never happen again. But it did happen again almost three months later, but this time to two young white women. Swedish servants Christine Martinson and Clara Strand were attacked but not killed on March 19, 1885, and the press reported it widely. The public now demanded that the killer be hunted down, but Austin's corrupt police force was no help. Less than two months later, in early May, another black woman was murdered. Like Molly Smith, Eliza Shelley was a private cook and a single mom. Her husband was in prison, so she was the family's sole provider. Shelley was discovered by her own children inside a house, and again, the killer had wielded an axe and attacked her brutally. The following spring, when it happened again, in virtually the same manner, they still kind of turned a blind eye because the woman was black. After three weeks came a third attack on a black female servant, this time with a knife. Irene Cross was a widow and a single mother. A local reporter wrote that it appeared that she had been scalped. Irene's eight-year-old nephew said that he saw the attacker. He described him as a big, chunky black man, barefooted, with his pants rolled up. But other eyewitnesses couldn't definitively say the man's race or much of anything else. These were not just crimes against women of color. These were executions preceded by experiments that a disturbed child might conduct on an animal. And still, there was virtually no media coverage because the killer was stalking a disenfranchised community. After Irene Cross was found, there were other women who were attacked and survived, but the police refused to investigate aside from examining the scene and asking some cursory questions of their employers. Austin, Texas was being stalked by a serial killer who was targeting mostly black women, and it didn't seem like he was going to stop. Until he did. Then the the killings sort of stopped that summer, and it was a brutally hot summer, I mean, triple digits. In July of 1885, Austin sweltered under intense summer heat. That didn't stop people from continuing to argue and continuing to kill each other. Women of color were still victims of random crimes, but the servant girl annihilator had vanished. We don't know why he stopped, but why do any serial killers stop? Maybe he was in jail for something else. Maybe he died. Maybe he moved or he got married or he became a father. We know that life circumstances change for serial killers just like they do for everyone else. The black community in Austin thought it was over. But that's not what happened. In August, the servant girl annihilator attacked again, seriously injuring another victim. But then a few weeks later, right at the end of August, the young daughter of a black servant named Mary Ramey was raped, lobotomized, and killed in a backyard. Mary Ramey was killed, and her, and her mother, Rebecca, was also attacked. And Mary was lobotomized through the ear and through the temple as well. Rebecca survived her attack, and she was told that Mary's condition was such that these pins had to be released from her head in order for her to pass peacefully. 
and she lived like that for two hours. They found that she was an 11-year-old girl, and that was the turning point right there. People could no longer just dismiss it and say, well, you know, this is working class, or these are, these are people of color. No, no, this was an 11-year-old girl, and it had to stop. Now, the Black community in Austin was terrified once again. The annihilators seemed to be targeting children, but still, there was little about the murders in the local press. Then, a month after Mary died, two more killings. Gracie Vance and her boyfriend, Orange Washington, were both murdered as they slept in a small building behind her employer's house. Gracie was raped before she was killed. So now that's four adult women, one child and one man, all black, who were killed, in addition to a number of failed attempts, including two white women. In all of these crimes, there were several consistencies. The killer never wore shoes. The servant girl annihilator snuck around at night in bare feet, perhaps in hopes of not leaving shoe prints behind. Forensic experts in the late 1800s would have known how to match the imprints of shoes left behind at a crime scene, so maybe he understood forensics. He often used an axe to kill people. Nearly every household, wealthy or poor, would have had an axe near their woodshed. Wood and coal were the main sources of heat in the winter, and the first set of these murders happened during cold weather. The victims were all posed in a similar position. They were all attacked inside, and some were dragged and mutilated outside. Some women were lobotomized. The killer also brought tools with him, like the rods he used to lobotomize victims. And speaking of lobotomy, I wonder if he had been interested in medicine. There are easier ways to kill someone, and a lobotomy seemed to be pretty laborious unless he had a fascination with it. He was certainly a he because some of the women were sexually assaulted. The killer seemed very bright, very swift, and very disturbed. He was comfortable with death. He seemed to live for it. And there was one other consistency with the servant girl annihilator murders. The physician who studied the bodies. Dr. William Jefferson Burt dutifully reported to each murder scene, despite the race of the victim. He unzipped his bag, examined the wounds, made notes in his notepad, and prepared the body to be removed to his lab for an autopsy. Despite the growing number of victims in Austin, now including men, the white community seemed unaffected, worried perhaps about the loss of a servant, but that's it. Local historian Michael Barnes has studied this time period in Austin's history. He says that all of these murders were traumatizing. It struck fear in everyone's hearts and minds because we really were such a peaceful and sleepy town. The African-American community was particularly frightened because most of the victims were African-American. And everybody knew everybody. So when you hear a servant's house has been broken into and and they're murdered, everybody just, their blood curdled. The story of the servant girl annihilator has become a huge story in Austin's history, and there is a lot of local lore about it. One of the most prevalent myths centers on some of the city's most unusual structures, 
Well, they're not unusual to me because they've been here my whole life, but they might seem strange to visitors. They're the world-famous moon towers. They're large metal structures that stand 165 feet tall, which used to emit light from carbon arc lamps. My 12-year-old daughter wondered about the odd metal towers, so we went to one. The one that we're getting out to look at right now is one of 17 moon towers that are left in the world. We have to get out? Yes. It's freezing. Okay, ready? The moon towers have been connected to the case of the servant girl murders for more than 100 years. The local lore has been that city officials were so alarmed after the murders of the last two victims that they erected the lighting towers to shed light on the city and to protect its residents from a serial killer. These are just significant and I wanted you to see them. Go stand kind of right there. Look up, just look up, see the tower right above you? That's a moon tower, see it? The structure right in front of you, see? The metal one, yeah, that looks like you could climb up. That's a moon tower, yeah. That's so obvious. Well, I mean, what it's meant to do is like shine a light all over the city. It sounds like a great legend, bright towers that protect the city from a shadowy killer. But historian Michael Barnes says it's all just a myth. The moon towers didn't come along until a decade later. There is no historical evidence that the moonlight towers were erected to make the city brighter at night and, and therefore safer. In fact, interestingly, the servant girl annihilator worked during a full moon. That makes the story even creepier. And Austin is full of creepy stories, ghost stories. My other daughter wanted to stay in a haunted hotel over spring break. So we went to Austin's famous Driscoll Hotel, which has an entire floor that's haunted. Dawson, we'd like your um, most haunted room, please. We're here for one night. We're watching The Shining. That's the whole reason why we're here. We live here 15 minutes away. This is our spring break. We planned to spend the night in a haunted room and watch The Shining, Stanley Kubrick's classic horror film based on the Stephen King novel. Do you hear that even the elevator sounds like a ghost? Did you hear it? It was a terrible idea, by the way. We didn't see any ghosts, but the movie gave us both nightmares. Austin was officially incorporated in 1839, and so we've had almost 200 years' worth of murders in the city. But very few have disturbed me as much as the Servant Girl Annihilator killings. And the reason is because Eugene Burt might have been inspired by them. It was December 24th, 1885, Christmas Eve. Much of the city was on edge because a serial killer had been preying on black servants for the past year. Christmas was not as widely celebrated in the late 1800s as it is now, but it was a holiday marked by city festivities. But this would not be a restful holiday for the Burts, because the family's patriarch, William Jefferson Burt, was investigating two more murders. They happened in the same night, Christmas Eve. These two women would be the servant girl annihilator's final victims, as far as we know. That night, Dr. Burke walked into a beautiful home in downtown Austin, a house overlooking the picturesque Colorado River. It was owned by a couple, the Hancocks. Dr. Burke was told that this victim was still alive, 
she was attacked by a man wielding an axe. The investigators had not yet found the weapon, but it seemed clear that the serial killer stalking Austin was responsible. But this attack was different because this victim was a white woman who was dead, not just injured. Monica Ballard explains what happened when Dr. Burke located the woman lying on her floor. Sue Hancock. So this is the second to the last one. Yeah, second to the last one. Still Christmas Eve, 1885. And Dr. Burt, he was brought to the scene to examine the body, to to help to revive Sue from her injuries. And and nothing could be done. Her injuries were far too extensive. So set the scene for me. Sue was dragged out to the either the front yard or the, the backyard, either after she was wounded or the, the perpetrator, you know, whacked her on the side of the head in order to render her unconscious or at least not putting up a fight, dragged her out, I think, towards the backyard facing the river, continued with the killing until he up and ran off. And the daughters were were at a Christmas party. And when they came home, they found Moses bleeding from the head and dazed and, and confused. So Moses was Sue's husband. And they did a search and they found her out in the backyard. Moses went out there and, and the police were notified and they were on the scene rather rather quickly. That sounds like a nightmare of a crime scene, even for a seasoned city physician like William Burt. Police were everywhere. The victim's husband, the only witness, was severely injured. Neighbors were running all over, wondering what happened. And now Dr. Burt's job was to help investigators gather evidence to finally unmask the city's most famous multiple murderer. It was a daunting task. And standing by William Burt's side for at least part of the night was someone very close to him. His teenage son, Eugene Burt. His father had suggested that the 15-year-old come along with him to this latest murder. I have no idea why. Maybe Eugene had expressed an interest in medicine. Who knows? When Dr. Smoot had discovered that Eugene had killed Roscoe's bunny when Eugene was eight... Eugene had quickly responded that he hoped to study medicine just like his father. That Christmas Eve, Eugene would certainly receive a lesson in anatomy and evidence gathering. While his father examined Sue Hancock in the backyard, Eugene poked around the house. He eventually wandered to the master bedroom and lingered there for a while. Moments later, Eugene walked out, looked over at Sue Hancock and tapped on his father's shoulder. Dr. Burt and the investigators glanced toward the teenager. He was gripping something in both hands. Eugene stared at the blade and waved the handle of the axe in the air. It was Eugene who found the axe and pointed it out to the detectives and his father. Where was it? It was uh, like uh, off to the side of the, the bed. It turns out that this same axe was used to kill Sue Hancock. Monica Ballard says that Eugene and his two brothers must have heard about the servant girl murders from their father. They had to have been affected, or at least scared. 
This had been going on for almost a year. And now he was he was there. He was at the scene of the crime. Crimes that he had probably heard about from his father, at least his mother and father discussing it quietly amongst themselves, being concerned for the family's safety. My own kids become upset sometimes when they hear about horrible things on TV, especially involving children. I try not to talk too much about what I write about, but they've both started listening to my shows, so seeing a scene like that must have been disturbing to a teenager like Eugene Burt. There was one final murder later that night, another white woman, 17-year-old Eula Phillips. She was raped and murdered. Her husband was also attacked. There's no documentation that says Eugene went with his father to that crime scene, too, but there's no reason to think that he didn't since it happened that same night. Linda Frost is a retired law school professor. She says it's difficult to know how seeing Sue Hancock's body affected Eugene or what he might do because of it. I would think it would be pretty likely. It would be traumatizing. But you know, we can't know for sure without knowing Eugene. Um, and would that impact his actions 10 years later? Again, it's hard to know. You know, people experience trauma. Everybody does. She says that most of us have a certain amount of resilience that allows us to bounce back. Eugene might not have been affected at all. Over time, uh, many people would be able to put uh, a traumatic experience in its place and not have it dominate their lives and impact their actions. Uh, But we don't know what else happened in there. We don't know if he was vulnerable, if he had underlying challenges, and this was uh, layered on top of that. It's just, it's hard to know, but it certainly is an interesting piece of the puzzle, and I certainly wouldn't dismiss it. Forensic psychiatrist Christine Montrose agrees with Linda. She says that there are many ways to process trauma. Trauma is is such an interesting subject because all kinds of people endure trauma and respond to it in vastly different ways. And that means that someone might experience abuse and then become the abuser or not. There's not really a way of saying if someone experiences X trauma, then they are bound to behave in in Y way. There are so many people who suffer traumas who then don't go on to inflict trauma on other people. David Shepard is a defense attorney in Texas who owned his own firm before he retired a few years ago. David has defended many suspects who were accused of hurting people in their own family even killing them. Part of his job was to dig into his client's background and look for mitigating factors that could influence a judge or jury. I wonder if that kind of scene would have influenced somebody who would eventually go on and kill seemingly for no reason. Such a bizarre and traumatic set of facts for a 15-year-old to experience, and the knowledge of all the other murders and rapes that were taking place would have been part of the world he was living in. Who knows how that... It certainly could influence someone who is already predisposed to an unbalanced situation. Monica Ballard mentioned that, too. If he were predisposed to mental health issues, perhaps this experience at a murder scene when he was a teenager could have shaped him later in life in a terrible way. Christine Montrose says it's more likely that mental health struggles might have influenced him even more. Does that then 
predispose a person in some way to behave in a copycat kind of manner. The accumulation of stressors, predisposition to psychiatric conditions, could that have been a contributing factor, a contributing stressor to someone who also had fragility in other ways? Potentially. Christine mentioned something, stressors. Stressors are important in this story because Eugene seemed to have numerous stressors. Eugene's relative, Patricia Childs, says that the first major stressor came in 1886. Dr. William Burt, Eugene's father, suddenly died. His father was alive and died just the year after the servant girl murders. Actually, it was about six months after the serial killer's last murder. Dr. Burke died of a sudden case of dysentery, which is ironic considering he had been a major proponent of appropriate sanitary and sewage systems in Austin. But dysentery was common in the late 1800s. Dr. Burke was only 49 when he died, and it seemed like the entire city mourned him, especially Eugene. After the funeral, Eugene became morose and distant from his family, withdrawn from everyone. His brother Roscoe said, after our father's death, he maintained a stony gaze and always looked down. Every time we heard of him doing something, he was always doing something wrong. The loss of his father when he was just 16 had a tremendous impact on Eugene for the rest of his life. It was his first big stressor at least that we know of, the first life event that seemed to be out of his control. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has all of that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Eugene Burt's second stressor came when he met Annie Powers and became engaged in 1891. At first, he seemed happy with his new wife, but it wasn't long before her religious beliefs became a stressor for him, a very big stressor. I mentioned before that Annie's mother, Elizabeth, was from Ireland and she was Catholic. So was Annie's sister, Agnes, and so was Annie. Faith was very important to Annie. In fact, Eugene and Annie would live just a few blocks from St. Mary's Cathedral. The powers are listed in the church's registry of parishioners. They were valued members of St. Mary. Eugene was raised Presbyterian, though his devotion to his church was never really described. 
Eugene's father was close with Reverend Dr. Smoot, a very influential religious leader in Austin, and he was someone who would become important soon. Ted Eubanks is a historian at St. Mary. He tells me a little bit about the conversion process that Eugene would go through to satisfy his soon-to-be wife. So I think it would have been straightforward, but it would have taken time. And then the permission would have been given by the bishop at the time, who would have been in Galveston. One Sunday, I watched a service at St. Mary, the same church where Eugene and Annie went. It was so interesting because I had never listened to a service in Latin before. something that would contribute to this oddity, strangeness of the Catholic Church, is remember at that time, the masses were conducted in Latin. So boy, here are these strange people that are speaking something nobody has any idea what it is at that that point. So I, I can understand that. But I think his fear about that, that his kids would not be both Protestant and Catholic, is true. And Eugene did have a big fear about converting to Catholicism. He's sandwiched in between the church. (laughs) The cathedral's on one side and a couple of blocks away is the girls' school, the academy. He's literally, and he's across the street from what was St. Patrick's Church. He would have seen it. I mean, that would have been a building he saw every day. Wow, okay. He was literally surrounded by them. (laughs) Now, at at the time, uh, the streets weren't paved, you know, still horses and wagons tied up at the church. We still have places where the horses were tied. So he goes to these services in Latin, and they're saying all these strange things and taking communion. And these are all things that are very different for him. Were these fears common in the late 1800s for many Americans? It's always been this sort of misunderstanding of the church. One is the power of the Pope or the power he doesn't have within the church. And the second thing is just somehow that, you know, the Catholic Church is sort of mysterious what goes on in that church. You know, they believe in the real body and blood, that sort of thing. So I think it was part ignorance, part Protestantism, part Popeism. Do you think that misunderstanding still happens today? I mean, in little towns in Texas, there are still people that believe that Catholics are actual eating bodies and drinking blood. So I wouldn't be surprised at all by that. Now, one thing to think about, too, is if he's converting and he hasn't been converted yet, and he has all of this going on in his mind, there is a sort of a crisis moment facing him, and it's called confession. Confession means confessing your sins. Yes, that might have made Eugene nervous because he had committed many sins, including murdering a bunny and stealing and cheating and lying, a host of sins. But Catholicism and everything that went into it seemed to trigger Eugene. That fervent religious belief of his wife and his in-laws were stressors for him. All of this anxiety came to a head before his conversion in 1892, One night, Eugene visited Reverend Dr. Smoot's home. Eugene's behavior seemed alarming, at least to me. And he burst into Dr. Smoot's house one time, drunk as all get out, and started ranting on about how the Catholics were trying to take over the country and maybe even the world, and Dr. Smoot better watch his step because he better be ready to convert or do battle with the Catholics. And basically said, Eugene, you're drunk, go home. (laughs) 
and really never forgot it. I assumed, of course, that his ranting must have been connected to something happening in his mind, a mental illness that he couldn't control. Not necessarily, Ted Eubanks told me. He reminded me that many, many people ranted in the 1800s about Catholics taking over the world. So that might not have been a sign of mental imbalance. And former law school professor Linda Frost agrees. She says that evaluating not just the person, but also the culture of the time period is important when deciding if the person needs psychiatric treatment. I think it's really important for people doing forensic evaluations and for people weighing in on legal cases to understand the culture that people are coming from. Because what's normal behavior in our culture might seem unusual in another culture. If you allow the dominant culture to apply those standards to everybody else, you're going to come up with some bad decisions. Because what I think is normal is a product of my worldview, right? And what I think is unusual behavior may be normal and appropriate within other cultural contexts that I'm not familiar with. Ted Eubank says that Annie's insistence that Eugene convert might have made him even more unstable and definitely more resentful. What I wonder is, for your story, that's more, I would think, a figment of his psychosis. You know, if she was pushing him to convert, she would not have been the first wife to do that, trust me. Eugene did manage to make it through the whole process of converting. He did become Catholic, even though he refused to go to Mass with Annie and the kids. But converting didn't seem to ease his paranoia about the church at all. Ted's point is that Eugene's fear of the Catholic Church would not have been enough to push him toward murder. And I agree, but it didn't help. It contributed to his state of agitation. And an agitated person who was prone to violence could become dangerous. Eugene Burt seemed devoted to his new wife, Annie, and their family, even if he wasn't fully committed to the Catholic Church. I asked Monica Ballard about the reaction of Annie's family when she and Eugene became engaged. I'm certain that there was some pushback when they got engaged and the powers said, oh, you will become Catholic. This marriage will happen in a Catholic church. I'm sure that Eugene was probably not happy by that. And they held their ground and they they saw it through. And Eugene had to come back to the, even if he didn't attend mass with Annie and the children, he had to come back when they were christened. But besides the kind of creepiness of some of the things he did, the big trouble seemed to center around Catholicism, most likely. Yeah. And his general ineptness in everything that related to business. Right, yes. <laughs> the old son-in-law, when are you going to find a job? So the loss of his father and joining the Catholic Church weren't the only sources of strife for Eugene. Like we mentioned earlier, he also had problems keeping a job. He had had problems for years, and that wasn't the only issue. Eugene had stolen from his two brothers, Roscoe and Monty. He had ruined at least one of their businesses. Eugene must have resented them for being so successful when he clearly wasn't. He had two brothers. He was constantly given opportunities to prove himself and just sort of failed at at, at every turn. And then Eugene began getting into trouble that involved other businesses, not just his brothers. And that was a problem. 
there was a whole big brouhaha with a pair of diamond earrings that he was interested in in buying for Annie and said, I really don't know if she'll like them. So may I take them home and show them to her? He said, sure, sure, go ahead, see if she likes them. And he resold the air, the earrings to another jeweler for about three quarters of the amount of money. So when the when the original jeweler is approaching the family and saying, how'd you like the earrings? And, she, and Annie says, what earrings? That's not a good sign. But Eugene still seemed committed to raising a nice family. As I mentioned before, friends said that he helped Annie with household chores when the servants were off. And that's another thing. How did they afford servants if he was always struggling with employment? Annie had been a bookkeeper, but neighbors said that she stayed home with their young girls. So she didn't have an income anymore. I suspect that both families helped them financially, particularly Eugene's brothers. And soon, they would come to his rescue once again. For all accounts, they were a loving family that he doted on. Annie and the children gave her expensive gifts that he probably stole the money to get. <laughs> because he really never had a regular job. No, he, he just couldn't hold one down. And I don't know who would have given him this job, collecting money. How do you get a gig like that when you have that kind of reputation? What was his, was he charming? I mean, do we have any sense for what his personality was like? He appears to have been charming. Everybody, okay. yeah, everybody who who observed him with his family it said that he constantly, you know, kissed Annie and played with the children and just was a wonderful family man. But still, the specter of his father's death continued to haunt Eugene. It's clear that without his father, something changed in his life's trajectory. His brothers pointed to a pretty specific time when they felt like things had really changed for Eugene. He started acting oddly after his father died. Yes, uh, becoming more morose and also underhanded dealings. He tried twice to get Dr. Smoot to sign documents, fraudulent documents, so that he he could profit from business arrangements or something like that. And and Dr. Smoot basically wanted to distance him. He's like, you know, I'm sorry about your dad, really, but that doesn't make us friends, (laughs) okay? All of these stressors had the potential to trigger violence in a man with both mental health struggles and a young family to support. Dimple Mahotra is a judge in the domestic violence court in Austin, Texas. She says that people who appear in her cases experience all varieties of stressors, even some that are similar stressors that appeared for folks in the 1800s. Stressors, substance abuse or anything like that, those can obviously exacerbate the situation and make the violence more frequent, more severe. What are some other examples of stressors that you see in court? People who uh, have lost their jobs, people are under a lot of stress. If you have a situation where a person's never been violent before, but there is an altercation, for example, people have been drinking, and both people are violent because they're stressed out, because they're getting evicted or whatever. But you don't necessarily consider that domestic violence. Domestic violence is 
a systematic pattern of power and control that's used by one intimate partner against another. And so these things can make it worse, but they're not the cause of true domestic violence. You do have those situations where it's not domestic violence. It's two people who react violently to stress, but there's not a power differential there. And so that's really the difference. In the summer of 1896, Eugene Burt was frustrated with just about everyone. His wife, who nagged him to find regular work. His two young daughters, who cried often about seemingly nothing. The Catholic Church, just down the road from him, with their disturbing services and beliefs. His mother-in-law, who lived close by, a little too close. And his brothers, who always overshadowed him. He never seemed good enough. One hot, sticky night in July, Eugene Bird had finally had enough. He glanced at the woodpile next to his house, and he stared down at something he had just bought a few days earlier, an axe. There were things happening in his head, really bad things, and though more than a decade had passed, Eugene still couldn't forget that image of Sue Hancock's gashed head and the feel of the axe that had killed her the same feeling as the axe he held in his hands. He picked up a burlap sack and slipped the axe inside. Nothing would happen that night. But before long, something would happen. And no one in the Powers family or the Burt family would ever be the same. On the next episode of Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. After Eugene's mother died, he just totally went off the deep end one time. A lot of people will describe him as a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde type of situation, but in reality, uh, Eugene Burt was kind of a shyster. He had some pretty shady business dealings where he screwed over his brothers in a deal. He would lie, and they would keep bailing him out. He didn't have to face consequences. And yet, if this was a condition that he was, in effect, born with, would any amount of appropriate parenting, setting up boundaries, would any of that really serve a purpose? Or was he, in some way, and sadly, doomed to just be the person he was? If you love a good, real ghost story, my new audiobook original, The Ghost Club, is available for pre-order now wherever audiobooks are sold. I can't wait to tell you the real story about the world's most famous ghost hunter, who was the head of the world's most famous ghost club, and how he investigated England's most famous haunted house. Please also check out my new book, All That Is Wicked. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Natalie Wren. Editors Jason Whaling, David Fabello, and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Researcher Kate Winkler-Dawson. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com.
Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.